Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to China Under Xi, a special world review podcast series from The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. Over the next three weeks, we'll explore China's past, present and future under Xi Jinping as he prepares to embark on a third term in power. In today's episode, Great Expectations, we look back at how we got here, from the dictatorship of Mao Zedong to the country's extraordinary economic rise and the measures that were meant to prevent a return to one-man rule. One of the things that had absolutely united almost all of the top leaders who essentially made it through 1976-77 was that that wasn't going to happen again. That's Rana Mitter, the University of Oxford historian and author. I'm also joined by Susan Shirk, chair of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego, and author of the new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Now we have a takeover of Chinese political system by another more dictatorial leader who has made a lot of arbitrary decisions. On the 1st of October, 1949, a huge crowd gathered in Tiananmen Square in the center of Beijing. The Chinese Communist Party had defeated the Kuomintang forces led by Chiang Kai-shek in the Chinese Civil War. At exactly 3 p.m., the Communist Party's leader Mao Zedong stood on the balcony of the Gate of Heavenly Peace and declared the foundation of the new People's Republic of China. The People's Republic of China and the Central People's Government are now established. Over the next three decades, Chairman Mao built up an extraordinary cult of personality. He also launched a series of disastrous campaigns that led to a devastating famine, which began in the late 1950s and killed tens of millions of people. 
as well as what he called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, beginning in 1966. Mao urged his young supporters, known as Red Guards, to reinvigorate the communist revolution and rid the country of its supposed enemies, plunging China into a decade of violence and chaos. Xi Jinping had just turned 13 when the Cultural Revolution began. He was what was known as a Red Princeling, the son of one of the original Communist Party revolutionaries who had served alongside Mao. But Xi's father had fallen out of favour with Mao. He was detained and repeatedly beaten, and Xi's half-sister died in mysterious circumstances during the mayhem. Xi himself was sent down to the countryside, as the process was known, to labour in the fields and learn from the peasants. The campaign only ended with Mao's death in 1976. During the decade that followed, the Communist Party introduced a series of reforms that were meant to ensure a system of collective leadership and prevent another Mao-like figure from returning to power. From 1966 to 76, when there had you know, essentially been an internal civil war within China, you might say, an ideological civil war that turned the place upside down. This is Rana Mitter. And one of the things that had absolutely united almost all of the top leaders who essentially made it through 1976-77 was that the cult of personality, the idea that Chairman Mao as a top leader could essentially arrogate all power to himself, you know, launch something like the Cultural Revolution, essentially make himself, you know, the phrases of the Cultural Revolution, posters at that time, the, the shining sun in the heart of all Chinese, that wasn't going to happen again. And they did two things. The first thing was to essentially declare that the Cultural Revolution was a mistake, that Chairman Mao, you know, now dead, great leader who had brought China to modernity, but the Cultural Revolution itself was an error. And linked to that, and this comes from 1981, when essentially the party put out a long document called, a very boring title, but very important significance. It's called the, the Resolution on Certain Questions in Our Party's History. And what it was basically was a very grudging, very grudging apology for the Cultural Revolution to the Chinese people and the statement that it mustn't happen again. And that then allowed that leadership group, which then became dominated ultimately by Deng Xiaoping, the man who people who know a bit about China will know essentially dominates China all the way from the late 70s to the early, early 90s, to institute a new set of rules for leadership. And those have remained very, very constant through the following decades until recently, which is the idea that essentially no one top leader can have more than two five-year terms in power. So American presidents get elected two terms, four years, eight years in total, that's it, they're out the door. Under this system, no general election, of course, but in selection, Chinese top leaders are essentially given this deal of two five-year terms, and then that's it, you have to be out the door. The party also began to contemplate economic reform. That late 70s period essentially is one when the direction of travel, which you still see very much in the China of today, that although you have the party, the Chinese Communist Party, absolutely in command, you also need to have a set of market mechanisms that actually drive the economy. And that's different from the sort of Soviet-style command economy that Chairman Mao instituted back in the 50s and 60s. But the Communist Party wasn't prepared to cede political control. 
when hundreds of thousands of protesters rallied in Tiananmen Square in the spring and early summer of 1989 to demand greater political freedom, the party responded with brutality. The Chinese military opened fire on its own people in the heart of the capital. But China's leaders still wanted to develop the economy and to shake off their status as international pariahs. And in the years that followed, they pursued better relations with the United States and a debate about how to modernize China, albeit without threatening the Communist Party's rule. Rana Mitter again. One of the most interesting sets of debates which lasted, has lasted, you might say, over decades, all the way from, let's say, the mid-1980s all the way up to the early 2010s, is a debate over democracy. And an awful lot of observers from outside, I think, have taken the wrong implication from this, because the assumption that democracy in the mind of the Chinese Communist Party means a liberal multi-party system has almost never been, even amongst the most open-minded of communist leaders, the end goal. And I think failing to understand what I think has always been the key goal of the top communist leaders from all the way from the 1980s up to the early 21st century, which is to find a system that on the one hand does create either more or less degrees of openness and civil society in a modernized China, but also on the other very large, and you might say iron-gloved hand, is also determined that the overall power of the Chinese Communist Party is never going to be challenged. And it's balancing those two things and the level of balance between them that really, I think, is where the heart of the debate has been. So I would say that, you know, there have been periods and let's say the late 1990s to the early 2000s, when ideas about democracy have been put forward in some quite wide ranging ways. A couple of quick examples. During the late 1990s, there was a lot of interest under the presidency of Jiang Zemin. In retrospect, now considered one of the more liberal leaders of recent China, even though those who know about Jiang Zemin will know that he is a dedicated communist, you know, he comes very much from that, that background, you know, he's lived his life in the party. But he was willing, for instance, to have his theoreticians look at Singapore and say, well, look, this is a country which, of course, has an electoral system, but the ruling party gets to stay in power the entire time. And also it's modernized, it's efficient, it's economically effective. You know, what can we learn from Singapore? Another example, in 1998, President Bill Clinton visited China and on live national television, President Jiang Zemin of China and President Bill Clinton of the United States debated the meaning of democracy on live TV. But if you are so afraid of personal freedom because of the abuse that you limit people's freedom too much, then you pay, I believe, an even greater price. Susan Shirk was a senior official at the U.S. State Department at the time. She recalls accompanying President Clinton on that visit to China in 1998. That Clinton trip was really quite remarkable, not so much because of the things we agreed on, the deliverables, if you will, as we call them, but because of the press conference between President Clinton and Jiang Zemin, in which Clinton talked about the Dalai Lama, Tibet, you know, he said, well, you'd really like the Dalai Lama. You really should talk to him. He's a remarkable man. And Jiang Zemin allowed this to be televised live to the Chinese public. And then President Clinton gave a wonderful speech to the students at Beijing University in which he said, 
I understand why the Chinese people are so concerned about stability, given your history. But, you know, the true stability is stability that derives from the people bottom up and can't be imposed top down and things like that, that, you know, really, I think, impressed his audience in China. So there was reason to believe Although I confess, with the permanent normal trade relations and China's admission to the WTO, that we oversold what the positive domestic effects would be inside China, for sure, because we had the challenge of getting it through Congress. But still, there was reason to believe that our more welcoming diplomacy toward China was leading China to evolve in a positive direction. There was optimism in China, too, about the opportunities that might come with the country's admission to the World Trade Organization, as Rana Mitter recalls. If you were wandering around Beijing in the late 90s, which I was, you could sort of see people wearing T-shirts saying, give China a chance, let China into the WTO. I mean, I struggle to find myself, you know, thinking of people wandering around London or New York with T-shirts advocating entry into international organizations. But it became a point of real national pride for many people in China. And I would say that we could use that symbol of maybe a young woman in her you know, early 20s wearing a let China into the WTO T-shirt to express two things which came together and which I think are really important political factors during that time, and they're important now. Number one is that large numbers of young Chinese are very patriotic, in some cases even nationalistic, you might say. And assuming that that is something manufactured or it's kind of whipped up by propaganda, I think, again, is a deep misunderstanding of the kind of really strong sense that China has been held back and needs to rise in the world that many, many young and older people have. But the other factor, which again tends to get forgotten, is that particularly in much much of the middle class, China had become very cosmopolitan. It was really keen to be part of the wider world. It didn't want to be shut behind a great war, whether virtual or, or real. And those two factors coming together, the nationalism and the cosmopolitanism, which both exist and interact with each other, I think tell you a lot about the political current that I think the Chinese Communist Party was trying both to shape and mould and control, but also exploit. Coming up after the break. So what changed? As a reminder, all three episodes of this series will be available on the World Review podcast feed and online at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We're also offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to this podcast. You can get 12 weeks for just £1 a week in the UK or $2 a week in the US by visiting newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge, Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. 
ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In 2008, China hosted the Olympics. The spectacular opening ceremony in Beijing, which featured 2008 performers drumming in unison, was billed as a celebration of the country's extraordinary rise and its increasing international clout. But for many observers, this year also marked the beginning of an important political shift in China, as leadership cracked down on domestic unrest in Tibet and Xinjiang and adopted a more assertive posture overseas. As Susan Shirk explains, Western optimism about the country's trajectory began to fade. Well, I was really surprised when I saw it happen in real time before the Olympics and tightening up before the Olympics over uh, the media, over civil society. And then I thought, well, this is just tightening up before the major event of the Olympics, as China often does, the party often does before major political events. And then things will loosen up after the Olympics, which of course was a high point of China's peaceful rise. But then things never loosened up again. 
The global financial crisis that began later in 2008 only reinforced the party's confidence in its own political system. For Rana Mitter, this was a key turning point. That was the moment at which, you know, as we know, I think the President George W. Bush said to Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, Hank, this sucker might go down, referring to the American and therefore the global economy. That sentiment was heard in China. And it was said that Wen Jiabao, who was then the Chinese Prime Minister, he basically was said to have gone to Hank Paulson, who's still US Treasury Secretary, or shortly afterwards, and said, you know, Hank, you were our teacher. You were supposed to be telling us what to do, not least because Hank Paulson, his previous job, had been CEO of Goldman Sachs and had been doing lots of privatization in China. So Wen Jiabao says, well, Hank, we were supposed to be our teacher, but what do you have to teach us now? And at that point, Beijing thinking, well, actually, in terms of economics, in terms of liberal culture or opposition to it, in terms of geopolitics, what is it exactly that we've got to learn from the Washington consensus? It's nearly, you know, sent the world into a recession. And we in China have basically operated a different method of bringing the world economy back. We've injected huge amounts of credit. This, of course, is one of the reasons that China now has so many shiny airports and subway systems around the, the country, you know, huge amounts of, of public spending, very, very New Deal FDR, you might say, in a, a way quite, quite American. All of that, I think, then turned China's leadership into a group of people who actually felt, well, look, we will do this our way. We will work out what works for us. And we will not feel beholden anymore to looking at examples from elsewhere. But as China was becoming richer, it was also becoming more unequal and more corrupt. Xi Jinping, Li Keqiang, He Guoqiang, Zhou Yongkang. Enter Xi Jinping, who became the Communist Party's leader in November 2012. Susan Shirk explains how he viewed the task ahead and the gathering threats to the party's hold on power. He believed, I think, that the party was in jeopardy because of this corruption and because of society had been so changed by market reforms, the market economy. So you had a lot of churning in society People were much more open to the outside world, traveling in and out, going abroad to study. And he, I think he believed that the communist regime in China and the party itself was in jeopardy and that he, being a princeling, the son of a major leader of the revolution and one of Mao's comrades, it was his responsibility to save it. Next week on episode two of China Under Xi. There are many party veterans who are horrified by the end of collective leadership and the return to one man, strongman rule by Xi Jinping. And yet they feel powerless to do anything about it. What happened after Xi came to power and how he sent the country back on the path to personalist rule? You've been listening to China Under Xi, a special World Review podcast series from The New Statesman. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. I'm Katie Stallard in Washington, DC. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe, maybe even leave us a nice review. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next week.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.